text today to Genesis 10. Genesis chapter 10, verses, well, the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. We come to this chapter now as we work our way through the book of Genesis. This will be a a new section. Uh, As you'll notice, it is introduced by these are the generations of. That's our phrase that appears uh, sectioning off ten portions of the book of Genesis. As we've come to a conclusion of Noah's story, we come to what happened to his sons. So let me go ahead and read, uh, or try to read, chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riftha, and Tagorma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Sabteca. The sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehebim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kaslohim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemarites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the eldest brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpakshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his name the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Elomadad, Shelath, Hazarmatheth, 
Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing. Dear God, we know that your word is given to us. It's profitable to direct us, to teach us, to correct us, uh, to make us wise for salvation, uh, to edify your people. We pray that you would uh, use it in this way to make it effective and powerful. You would guide the preaching to be true to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This text is sometimes called the Table of Nations. Uh, At first you think it's just another genealogy. There's a number of genealogies, but this one, as it indicates at the final verse, not only are these the sons of Noah, but these are the clans of the sons of Noah. It's more than uh, a bunch of individuals, although it does involve a bunch of individuals, but individuals as the heads of tribes and clans and nations as they began to develop and have children and grandchildren and began to organize into uh, larger communities and to spread abroad on the face of the earth. And again, this is the big picture. This didn't happen in one year or ten years or even maybe a hundred years. This is uh, a process that took time for them to spread out and to get to the lands that bear their names. Uh, But kind of zooming out in the big picture, this is what became of the sons of Noah. Uh, And it doesn't list them in their uh, age order, at least of the three sons. goes Japheth, Ham, and Shem because it's Shem that's going to gain the most attention as the story progresses, just as it will deal with, you know, Cain before Seth, and list, I think, Cain, uh, uh, Esau's genealogy before Isaac, so it's going to deal first with Japheth, who is the furthest from uh, Israel, had least contact with them, and then Ham, which, of course, involves Canaan and Egypt, some people that they're definitely going to deal with quite a bit, and then Shem itself, which is where Abraham came from. Now, in this chapter, uh, it demonstrates how all the nations and peoples of the earth come from one source, and they share a basic unity. From one source, humanity is spread out into clans, lands, languages, we might say cultures, language being an important part of that, and nations. Uh, There are people groups, and Both the unity of the human race and the diversity of different groups is proper and good. It's the way God designed humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But, as man turns from God, human pride rears its ugly head and causes trouble. I think just as Cain's violence was intensified by his descendant Lamech. I think we see here Ham's dishonor of his father intensified by his descendant Nimrod, who uh, founds Babel. And as we'll find in the next chapter, Babel is uh, is built on a foundation of defiance towards God. But 
One important reason for this table of nations is that it forms essential background to what we'll find in chapter 12. For the later promise to bless all the families and nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. Even though it's going to narrow in on one person, one man, Abraham and his offspring, all of these nations from which other nations came from too, filled the whole earth, they're still in, kept in mind. They're still held in memory. They still form the backdrop of what else is going to follow in the rest of the book of Genesis and the Bible. Uh, and so it's important context. What I want to do is to first give an overview of the table of nations, describe um, what we have here, and then uh, draw a few points that we can uh, learn from it um, about the unity and diversity of humanity and the raging of the nations uh, and the blessing of the nations. Now, a number of the names uh, in this chapter are used elsewhere in Scripture uh, to refer to nations that Israel would continue to have contact with, some of them more frequently than others. Some we don't know very much about, Uh, Some we know more about. Some find similar equivalent names in other ancient records from other peoples at the time. Nations would continue to go forth and multiply from the ones mentioned. For example, Abraham. uh, From him came Israel. Israel's not mentioned yet because, you know, we're, we're, we're not quite to that point yet. So from these nations, there's 70 that are listed. Uh, People would continue to move out and to multiply and to fill the earth. Um, and there might be, I don't know what to make of it quite yet, but there is an interesting parallel between the 70 nations here and then at the end of Genesis, all the number of Israel's descendants when they move to Egypt is 70 as well. Perhaps a microcosm of the nations or something to that effect. <clears throat> but it begins, like I said, with Japheth. His heirs initially lived in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, or sometimes it's called Anatolia, uh, as well as the Caucasus, so places like Armenia and Georgia and and north of the Black Sea as well. Uh, That's where his descendants uh, initially lived and then spread out from there uh, over to Europe as well as uh, to Asia, uh, including what we would call today the Indo-Europeans. Uh, He has more sons than his brothers, which is keeping with God's promise to enlarge Japheth, uh, a play on his name, but a blessing that was given in chapter 9. Gomer and Magog lived in the north, uh, in the Caucasus region, and perhaps even further north. Um, Magog, of course, is famous, I think, in Ezekiel for having a ruler, Gog. But uh, Gomer and Magog were nations that lived to the north. Uh, Gomer's sons were Ashkenaz, who's sometimes identified with the Scythians, which was a people north of the Black Sea. Uh, Riftha and Torgma, or, or Togorma, Togarma, is uh, places and peoples in eastern Turkey, or what's now eastern Turkey. Madai is the name of the Medes. It's usually translated Medes, and they lived in what's now Iran, so uh, further east, um, east of Babylonia, uh, kind of in northern Iran. Javan is the name for the Greeks, especially the Ionian Greeks. In fact, there's probably a relation between those two words, and that's another word used elsewhere in the Bible. 
his sons, uh, Elisha, uh, is probably a people in Cyprus or Crete. Tarshish is, of course, where Jonah was trying to get to, some western island or port. Some people think it might have been Tarsus. Uh, Kittim is the name for Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean. And Dodonim is probably the Greeks, perhaps connected with Dodona, Greece, one of the uh, ancient uh, oracles in Greece. Tubal and Meshach were names of people in Asia Minor. And so these were the descendants of Japheth that are mentioned here. The next son is Ham, the one next one to be mentioned. His descendants mostly settled in Africa and also some of the lands next to Africa, so Canaan, for example, as well as parts of Arabia. Cush is one of his sons. His name is given to the people south of Egypt, like Ethiopia and Sudan. <clears throat> Cush's descendants um, that are listed here have names connected with Arabia. So some of his descendants lived there and established peoples there. Seba is likely along the upper Nile. Cush also fathered Nimrod. And we'll learn more about Nimrod here in a minute. But he established Babel. This is probably before they had spread much further, before they made it to Africa. Because part of the building of Babel was to keep people from dispersing. You know, and so as they get off the ark and are having children, Nimrod builds Babel and establishes a kingdom for a time. <clears throat> Egypt, and that's the way the ESV translates it because it's simply the Hebrew word for Egypt. Uh, and we know where that is. He fathered peoples. Notice how sometimes the names are, could be names of individuals, but it says Egypt fathered, and then it lists a bunch of uh, nation names, uh, with all of the plural endings. So these nations came from him, and these nations, like Ludim and Anamim, are peoples that settled throughout northern Africa, you know, from Egypt to Libya to where Cyrene would later be on uh, across northern Africa. Uh, Put's name is another people near Egypt associated with it elsewhere in Scripture, either Somalia or Libya. And then Canaan, and his descendants are mentioned and are also a little more familiar to us because we'll find some of these tribes mentioned as they settled in the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel because Israel dispossessed them and, uh, and, and came into that land as well. Really, this chapter bridges chapter 9, where Canaan is, is cursed prophetically, and chapter 12, where Abram is promised a promised land and travels to Canaan. For a while... Abram had relatively good relations with the Canaanite peoples. They were his neighbors. Um, later, they would be dispossessed by the Israelites. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned here, also Canaanites. Also, the Phoenicians of Tyre and Sidon uh, that would later found colonies like Carthage. They were also Canaanites. Um, Jezebel was from the Phoenicians, for example. But notice the focus on the land of Canaan. Uh, that's going to be important for the biblical story. It's also a central location. as you, uh, Shem itself is kind of between the other two peoples, but Canaan in particular, which is from Ham, that his land uh, is rather central to the nations. And then Shem is the other son, uh, he and his wife. Shem is notable, it says here in the text, as being the father of all the children of Eber. Now, why would that be important to know? Eber is one of his descendants, and so Eber's descendants are also his descendants. Well, Eber is where the word Hebrew comes, comes from. 
that, and Heber, Eber is one of the ancestors of Abraham, who's going to be known as a Hebrew. And of course, that name is usually then later given to the Israelites in particular, but probably had a broader reference uh, coming from the word uh, Eber. And so it's basically saying Shem is pretty important here because he's the ancestor of the ancestors of Abraham. Uh, His descendants settled in Mesopotamia, what we call Iraq now, uh, Syria, which is still Syria, and Arabia. Uh, Elam, Elam, the Elamites, uh, they actually lived to the east of Babylon, so kind of what is now southwestern Iran. Uh, It's the king of Elam, was one of the kings that rules over the cities of the plain that the Sodom, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are at war with. We'll come to them in a little bit. Asher is simply the name of Assyria, and that was located in northern Mesopotamia. Mazul, Iraq is where Nineveh was, and Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, an ancient civilization there. Arpakshad might be the origin of the Chaldeans, uh, or the Babylonians, one of the Babylonian groups, and they were in southern Mesopotamia. I think that's correct, because Arpakshad's descendant, Abraham, where does he start in? He starts at Ur the Chaldeans, uh, in one of those ancient cities in southern Mesopotamia. Arpakshad's grandson, Eber, like I said, is where the Hebrews come from. He had two sons, Peleg, who's named after a division, probably the division at Babel, and Joktan. Abram came from Peleg, and so there's not as much detail here about him because we're going to get to him in chapter 11. But Joktan has a number of descendants who established people mostly in southern Arabia, such as Yemen. Uh, What's Yemen today? Lud, we don't know as much about. Possibly the ancestor of the Lubdu, who lived on the upper Tigris. And finally, Aram, uh, which is the name of Syria. The Arameans are the Syrians. And not much is known about his sons listed here, but we do know some about the Syrians. And so these are the peoples that are listed here. They spread out to the north, to the east, to the south, and begin to fill the earth uh, to establish peoples and their lands. Now, again, one of the lessons I said we can find from this text is the unity and diversity of the nations. This chapter shows how God created humanity with both unity and diversity, as one and as many, as many from one. As Paul said in Athens, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Uh, God uh, has created all the nations. He created them from one source. He is sovereign over their times and their places. Uh, they have borders and, and uh, defined jurisdictions and, and uh, people groups. And God is the God of the nations and desires that they all uh, repent and come to him. We learn here that humanity is not a mere mass of disconnected atoms. It's not like each individual stands completely disconnected, is simply a part of this uh, vast human race. Uh, It's not like a beanbag with every individual, like a little piece of sand. Uh, It's more like atoms that are 
form molecules, that form you know, other structures that form this unity of the human race. We're, we're connected to other people. Um, we have relationships. Isra- individuals do not stand alone, but they exist in families. They exist in extended families. They exist in societies, in lands, in nations, in political bodies, in languages, in cultural groups. Multiple factors bring people together in, in concrete, you know, specific uh, communities and peoples. And so you're shaped by bonds of kinship, of language, of land, and nation. They're not, you know, ironclad uh, uh, distinctions that can never be crossed, but simply that that's the way people develop over time, that they uh, form communities and societies and have neighbors and have certain obligations to their neighbors, to their countrymen. These bonds bring both blessings, because you benefit from the people that are around you, that are connected to you, uh, as well as obligations that you sustain toward them. God's intent for Noah's descendants was to multiply and go out and fill the earth. We learn in the next chapter that when they resisted this mandate, he had to intervene to make them disperse. Uh, But this was his uh, plan. In other words, uh, particular identities and communities is not a product of the fall. Uh, uh, The Bible does not teach us to desire the abolishment of cultural identities or national identities. Um, But rather, it teaches us to seek the healing of the nations, to find the harmony and unity of the nations, but not the abolishment of the nations. Christianity does not aim at creating one global monoculture, um, as if there was only one Christian culture, but we seek to be, for there to be lots of Christian cultures, uh, rather the reform and flourishing of each culture in the ways of God. On the other hand, even though they're not the product of sin, they can be used as the occasion of sin. Sin corrupts good things, and these distinctions and identities can be and are often used sinfully as an excuse for bitterness or cruelty uh, towards people in other groups. So, it's also an important point that all the nations and peoples come from one source. There's a fundamental unity to the many branches of the human race, if we can even call them branches, simply in the sense that they all come from one source. Humanity is one species, one extended family, a point that's emphasized by this table of nations. Yeah, I'm from Japheth. Actually, we're probably from all three because they probably intermarried a lot at the beginning. But, you know, we're, we're heirs of, of Japheth. Oh, yeah, we, we came from Ham. We're from Sh- J- uh, uh, Shem. You know, that we're, we're one family here. We have the same basic problem, the inheritance of guilt and depravity. And the good news is the same good news for all salvation in Christ. So, it is not good to grow boastful or proud over other peoples, knowing that what each one has is a gift from God. But for the grace of God, your people would be as degraded as any other. If a nation or culture is particularly degraded in its uh, depravity, know that your own was probably just as bad at one point or another. We have the same root problem, and we are offered the same uh, solution. 
And so the presence of both unity and diversity in humanity presents you with responsibility. On the one hand, you have particular obligations to those who are near to you, uh, to your relatives, to those who live in the same society, to your countrymen. Uh, You ought, for example, to honor your father and your mother. Uh, The family is a microcosm of of the society, and uh, this principle is extended further out from them, but, but it begins at home. You ought to show faithfulness to your household, to your relatives, lest you be worse than an unbeliever, as Paul says in 1 Timothy. As Ruth and Boaz did, show kindness and faithfulness. Patriotism is an extension of this uh, filial piety. It is uh, patriotism is to show honor and devotion uh, to the people and to the land that has been like a mother both to you and to your parents. Uh, to show gratitude and faithfulness. When people dwell together, they entrust themselves to each other to a certain extent. You have to trust that your neighbor is not going to sneak in and steal all your stuff, or that the person that sells you something is going to be honest. We depend upon each other uh, as we live with each other. As Proverbs says, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. And so you are called to work for the common good. The Jews were called to work for the good of Babylon simply because they lived there. How much more should you seek the good of the country where you're a citizen? Seek the good of your land? Well, remember what Jeremiah told them to do. You know, make gardens, eat the food, do work, get married and have kids, build families, pray, pray for the good of the city where you dwell. Seek the good of your country and your people and your family by praying for it, by living quiet lives of honest work and piety and charity, being productive and helpful. Do so by promoting righteousness in your spheres of influence and responsibility, and by aiding in the discipleship of the nation, uh, baptizing and teaching the, the work that the church does. We all have a role to play in this work of discipleship. It's also of divine appointment that states are organized. You know, nations in biblical terms aren't always political entities, but they usually had rulers, representatives within a nation, or maybe several nations might be under one. But, uh, but states are organized with constitutions and rulers and borders for the maintenance of justice and the common good. It's not the only way to promote the common good, but it is one uh, tool. Some are called to it more than others. Um, But in a society like ours, we tend to get all drawn into it by the way our government is set up, and that is a good way to seek the good of your neighbor. Those who are called to serve in government ought to look out for the well-being of its people by maintaining piety and justice and peace. On the other hand, you also have obligations to the stranger, to the person who's outside your family, outside your neighborhood, outside your nation, your culture. They were made by God in his image. They're your relatives too. It's your fellow man, as well as the image of God. So do not insult God by degrading the stranger or by disparaging him. You treat them with compassion, with fellow feeling. They're a a fellow descendant of Adam and of Noah. We have Genesis 1 through 11 in common with all. The nobility of creation, the disgrace of the fall, the offer of redemption. The Bible does not teach that you must isolate from people of other races or peoples. Some have falsely claimed that at times. 
nor does it require open borders, open, open borders and birthright citizenship on the other hand. Um, it does say to love the foreigner, to show hospitality, to include them in your celebrations, to make sure they are not wronged or mistreated. As Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The Bible also commissions the church to disciple the nations. Christians are to seek the good of all through the gospel, at the very least by uh, supporting and sending missionaries, and through prayer, if not by a lot more. So look out for traps on both sides, the, the traps of only thinking about the unity of the race or only thinking about the diversity of the race. On, on the one hand, love for one's own can devolve into clannishness and pride and animosity to those on the outside. It can also begin to compete with love for Christ. And if your family is tempting you to compromise, you might give in. On the other hand, love for humanity is sometimes used to hide one's disregard for the person in front of you. To love humanity, but maybe not the human. Or as an excuse to betray your responsibilities to those under your care. Or it can devolve into a love of power and a disregard of human limits as we see at the Tower of Babel. I think the Apostle Paul is a good example of a proper balance. Paul renounced any pride or self-righteous confidence in his Jewish identity. In uh, Philippians 2, he said, I could boast of all of my great pedigree and my, my status and ancestry, but I count it all lost for the sake of Christ. He faithfully fulfilled his mission to the Gentiles, becoming all things for all men. But at the same time, he remained a Jew. He still would say, I, I am a Jew. He showed special affection for his kinsmen according to the flesh, even willing to go to hell for them. Not that that was an option, but in Romans 9, he dearly loved them, even when they did not walk in the ways of Christ. And so there is both uh, unity and, and diversity in the human race as God uh, created as it develops as it changes over time, uh, from time to time. And that kind of brings us to the other two points here, the raging of the nations and the blessing of the nations. Uh, Nimrod is one person that gets given a little more time in this list. He's the first person after the flood, that is, to be a mighty man. That's how the Nephilim were described. There were mighty men earlier. It's not necessarily saying that he is a Nephilim after the flood, simply that he's like them in being a mighty man, uh, a warrior, a king. Um, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Mighty being the same word here, the word used for a warrior usually. Being a hunter could refer to hunting animals, maybe dragons and stuff like that. You know, the, the, the mighty beasts that came off the ark that could harm the people. Um, or maybe it refers to hunting people and being a cruel tyrant. That's the way the text has usually been understood by a lot of people. And it actually could refer to both. A lot of ancient kings demonstrated their might and prowess in both ways. <clears throat> His kingdom was centered in Babel, in Erech, also known as Uruk, uh, Akkad. It's usually spelled with K's in ancient history books. Uh, but these are known towns that he established at the beginning of his kingdom in the land of Shinar, Mesopotamia. We get a better idea, though, of how to understand Nimrod from the next chapter. 
initially you could think, well, maybe this guy just is a powerful king, but then you realize in chapter 11, the motivation behind the building of Babel was, was not good, uh, was in defiance of God. And that puts a different interpretation on all these things. The yeah, mighty hunter of the Lord wasn't just talking about going out and shooting some deer, uh, but was, was maybe one who was cruel and violent. Uh, that he was a mighty man on the earth might not have just mean that he was a powerful ruler who established peace and justice, but might have been one who was driven by a lust for power and might. Now, verses 11 through 12 describe Nim- could describe Nimrod expanding his kingdom to Assyria in Nineveh. That's how the ESV translates it. It also could describe how Assyria, the guy, Asher, a son of Shem, went out from Babel to build Nineveh. I think that's probably the right interpretation, but it describes the building of another kingdom or empire, that of Assyria. Assyria and Babel, or Babylon, would become two major ancient empires with long-lasting legacies throughout the history of the world. Nimrod would not be the last ruler to be driven by a lust for power and fame. The nations are often uh, portrayed as a raging sea or as wild beasts, but God remains as the judge of the nations. As Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The Lord laughs at them. As Job said in chapter 12, God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He is sovereign and he judges and he guides them. As Psalm 94 says, he who disciplines the nations does he not rebuke? God is not only interested with, with Israel. Even in the Old Testament, he had an eye to the other nations and what they were doing. How much more in the New Testament? He disciplines nations. Will he not rebuke? They ought not to lift up themselves against him. As Proverbs says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. But like I said, and this is the note I'll close on, This chapter is essential background to the promise God gives to bless all the families and nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. That promise is given at least five times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, chapter 18, 22, 26, 28. I will bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. I will bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. Through Isaac's offspring. Through Jacob's offspring. And who is that offspring? The Lord Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He was born for all the peoples of the earth. He partook of flesh and blood and died and rose for every tribe and tongue and nation, gathering a people, a holy nation from every nation. His kingdom brings salvation and righteousness and peace to the peoples of the earth. People of every nation are doomed to death living under the condemnation and power of sin, under the sway of Satan, until Christ breaks those bonds and sets them free through faith. He has now bound the strong man. He has bound Satan from deceiving the nations as he once did. He is now plundering Satan's house and bringing salvation to all the peoples. He's been at work over the last 2,000 years. Great advances have been made, but his job is not done. Therefore, let every family and land and language and nation cease from their rebellion, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. As Psalm 2 says, he will dash them with a rod of iron. 
He is the king, and he will uh, rule, uh, but rather seek refuge unto the Lord Jesus. For the one who seeks, takes refuge in him will be blessed, will be saved, as Psalm 2 says as well. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Because God has given Jesus the nations as his heritage, and the ends of the earth his possession. That's what he said in Psalm 2 as well. He just said, ask of me, and I'll give them to you. Uh, he has now all authority in heaven and on earth. Isaiah would prophesy of the nations, the peoples, coming to the house of God. Not to the tower that Babel would build, but to a mountain of the house of the Lord who would be made taller than all the mountains, symbolically being the, bringing all the peoples who could uh, to the house of God to learn his ways, to walk in his paths, that God would rule them and bring peace among them. There's not always peace, there's not peace between the world and the church, but within those who have received Christ, there ought to be greater peace as under one ruler, one king, a Christendom that is slowly, slowly growing and being discipled even now. As Isaiah, two, uh, Isaiah 66 said, mentioning some of the nations mentioned in Genesis 10, God says, I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Drawing from Isaiah, we find the vision in Revelation, the vision of the city of God, the bride of Christ, the church descending onto earth, a vision that's beginning to be realized today and all the more in the consummation. By the light of that city will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. The same vision here from Isaiah. The church shedding its light to the nations, walking in its ways, learning its paths, being discipled by him, being saved by him, not only in this life, but in the life to come. It mentions the river of God flowing from this city, and trees of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, each yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so this is the work that goes on today. Through the gospel of Christ, through his word, through his sacraments, through prayer, the kingdom of Christ advances. And he's thinking about them all. About all the nations, all the families, all the languages, all the lands. And so may all the families of the earth be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. May he have dominion to the ends of the earth. And may his glory fill the earth. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for creating us from one man, creating every nation that is on the face of the earth, giving us land and good things and dominion over the works of your hands. We pray that you would rescue and save those who walk in darkness, that you would save individuals through faith in Christ and with them their relations, their ways, their, uh, their families, that you would bring 
us to Christ and disciple us so that nations might walk in your ways and enjoy the goodness of your word, that we might uh, be redeemed from the sin whose power and error and blindness holds sway over the nations and causes strife and violence and depravity and lust and greed, that you would uproot these things through the transforming work of the gospel, and that your kingdom-like leaven would work in the earth until the whole loaf is leavened. We pray that you would do this for our nation, that you would strengthen our bonds to one another, to our neighbor, to make us a blessing to those who are around us through our work, through our help, through our prayers, through the gospel, through our witness. We pray that you would do this for you alone, our God of the nations. You alone are one who saves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.